What are these climate elites doing to all of us? Are we watching climate elites putting on theater in order to drive their personal agenda? Well, yesterday, climate activist Greta Thunberg showed up at a coal mine in Germany to protest the coal mines being put into production. She was doing this because Germany recently shut down most of its nuclear power plants in a bonehead move. So they're now turning to coal, of course. It makes no sense at all. And she's right about that. But video emerged showing Greta being dragged off by police. And she was, quote, unquote, arrested. And then the mainstream media ran that version of the story. Oh, my God, she was arrested. She's a martyr. But then a short time later, behind the scenes video emerged showing Greta taking photos with police. So was the whole thing staged. You be the judge. Ralph Schulhammer, though, is an academic researcher, and he's just written an excellent new article in Newsweek titled Climate Activism Isn't About the Planet. It's About the Boredom of the Bourgeoisie, Those Elites, the Ruling Class. So Ralph is the perfect person to talk to about all of this. Perfect timing. You published this piece, Ralph, and literally in the same afternoon, uh, Greta Thunberg is arrested. First of all, your response to seeing that happen, that theater unfold. No, I think it uh, kind of reinforces what you just said and what I also tried to bring across in my piece, right, that a lot of climate activism is uh, a pastime for the wealthy elite or for the children of the wealthy elite. Maybe that's an even better way to put it. Uh, and uh, many of those who are represented in culture, in the media, or kind of to put it in a more general term, those who currently gather in Davos, right? This is exactly kind of the group of people that have certain issues on top of their agenda because it satisfies their own feeling of virtue, their own feeling of importance. But unfortunately, them pursuing their own goals can have devastating effects on those on the lower end of the, whether it's socioeconomically or, or planet-wide, right? I mean, we talked about this in the past, uh, kind of a lot of the climate policy is conducted on the shoulders of either slave labor in China or child labor in Africa. So there's a very dark side to this, which gets most of the time ignored because it doesn't fit the narrative. Right. So pulling out these rare earth minerals uh, that, of course, go into the solar panels, uh, the wind turbines and all of these things that then have no recycling programs. And we don't ever hear about that side of the story. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there is it's even more ironic just to give you two quick examples, because you mentioned the protests against coal mining in Germany where Greta Thunberg participated to mine that specific area of land for coal was sanctioned by the German parliament. So this was decided by the German parliament that the German Green Party is, of course, a member of the governing coalition. And you had this absurd scenario where the same members of parliament of the Green Party who voted for coal mining were then a week later in this uh, German village of, of Lützerath to protest the very coal mining they approved a few days earlier. Right? That shows you that a lot of this truly is 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 show and the second example is uh we know there are for example great lithium reserves in the u.s state of maine uh very close to a very you know fancy swanky ski resort where we can assume that many people who can afford to ski there are going to drive a tesla or any other electric vehicle but the state of maine immediately after they found those reserves has made a law that lithium mining in the state of maine will be illegal Right? And this shows you exactly what's going on. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's climate virtue for me and lithium mining, rare earth mining for thee. Right. No, great point. Why do you think they're doing this? Why is the bourgeoisie, are they just bored? And they, they've, they have nothing else to do. Why do you think that these elites are doing this? I think that's really the, the matter uh, that we have to discuss in more detail. 
that this is not a technical question or a scientific question. This is really a matter of many of those people in power or close to those in power, like, for example, the, the WF, Klaus Schwab and others, right, that they found their meaning, their identity, their reason of existence, if you want, in this, uh, as they call it themselves, right? I mean, Klaus Schwab's book is literally titled The Great Reset, right? This idea we have to remake the world at all costs, or to put it differently, not at all cost for them, but very much at all cost for everybody else. I mean, there was this very, you know, ironic story, uh, and we hear this all the time, you know, about the number of private jets that flew into into Switzerland, and that apparently escort services had to recruit, you know, new em employees, so to speak, to satisfy the e extreme demand for for sex workers during the the time in Davos. So it really has this kind of pre-French revolutionary feeling a little bit, right, where you have this luxuriously living elite uh, that at the same time wants to tell people that, ah, you can't drive your car. You know, you want to visit somebody using a plane because they live further away. Maybe you shouldn't do this. And I think there is a lot uh, or a huge part of this is, you know, you, use them, you yourself want to live a swanky lifestyle without feeling bad about it. So what you do is you try to ban others from doing it. But this is really a cultural phenomenon, I would argue, much more than a technical phenomenon or even has anything particularly to do with the climate because we all know that climate change will be mostly affected in India, in China and other parts of the world. It's not going to be decided in a coal mine in Germany or in a, you know, uh, electric vehicles in, in France. That's not going to be the front where this is going to be decided. And a lot of the pricing now we're seeing is, is devastating for so many small businesses, for so many average people. Of course, the data, I've covered this on the show last week, the data, the data for a kilowatt hour of electricity, the pricing has surged. Of course, natural gas pricing has surged across the board. We're seeing it now. Europe, of course, is getting hit with this massive cold snap. So now people are really firing up their, their heaters in order to stay warm. Uh, and so those elites won't feel any of it. They're going to be fine. They'll absorb all of those costs, but it'll be it'll be the little people, right? It'll be the proletariat, of course, that can't afford to even turn up their thermostat, put on an extra sweater, they're told to do that. And so this is going to adversely affect them, not the elite. It, it's even more absurd. I mean, let's assume, and that's fine by me, like, like let's assume that, that we disagree with the methods, but uh, we agree with the goals of, you know, the greater Thunbergs of the world. Now, if we look at the numbers, it's absolutely clear that the richer people get, the wealthier they get, the more they care about the climate, right? The more they care about environmental issues. So if they would be smart, or if it would really be about the climate and, and the environment, they would say, let's try to get as many people as possible as rich as possible, as quickly as possible, because then they're going to care even more about the issues that we care about. But that's not what they do. They do exactly the opposite, right? They say, well, you know, people, then they, they can't afford certain things, right? Certain lifestyles. We have to eat less meat. We have to travel less. Uh, we, as you said before, right, we have to get used to the fact that you can't take, to use one recent example, you can't take a hot shower every day. But this is not how you're going to convince people of your agenda. But that's my point. I don't think that the agenda really is what motivates them. I would even go so far to say, if we would go, you know, to, to the, the kind of the most outspoken activists and say, so here we have a magic button. And if we hit this magic button, right, we can freeze global climate, you know, below 1.5 degrees. I would suspect that they would say, 
we cannot push that button because even if then the climate problem is solved, there is still so much else we have to do because the system per se is wrong. Capitalism itself has to be, you know, abandoned or changed. So this is really my suspicion is it's more about a search for identity, which I can find also a little bit into this idea of a transnational identity, right? You identify with the globe and not, not your nation or your, your immediate uh, region. And I think this is how we have to have this conversation more and more, that this is an ideological ideology or a culture, if you want, right, that has very, very specific, emotionally held uh, goals uh, or, you know, things they would tr they want to achieve, but it's more driven by religious fervor and religious sentiment and not by a problem-solving attitude. Because, last point, if it would be problem-solving, there are many good news, right? The ozone layer apparently is healing itself over time. The Great Barrier Reef uh, is in much better conditions than we were told it would be uh, a couple of decades ago. So there's a lot of good stuff happening, right, that, that would kind of should motivate us to say, okay, what can we do to double down on the things that make these good things happen? But that's not their goal, right? It's the no. idea that you want to preach virtue. It's a little bit like, you know, a new kind of reformation with one difference, right? The early kind of the Martin Luther reformers, at least in many cases, they practice what they preach. But what makes them worse at the moment is that they preach what you have to do differently, while they themselves don't have to do it. And I think that makes it even worse. No, hallelujah. That is absolutely spot on. And all of the good things that are happening right now, the Great Barrier Reef, polar bear populations. I mean, oh, yes. the, the list is pretty endless right now, but they don't want you to know about that. They want you to, uh, they want you to suffer while they fly their private jets into Davos. Um, Ralph, always great to see you. Uh, th you know, there's no one else we'd rather turn to for this, uh, this context here on this show. And as many eagle eyed, uh, viewers who are watching our show right now will point out, they want to know about your masters of the universe figures back there and someday you and i will have to compare action figures that i've got behind me and your mass and your he-man <laughs> figures back there <laughs> it's it's for me it, it anchors me right i mean it's the kind of, i always say that my interest in politics was uh was uh, awoken by the very idiosyncratic policies of eternia and the competition between he-man and skeletor uh but it's it's more like this right they're gonna it's, for me it's uh I think one of the, the, the things that, and this is another conversation I hope we're going to have someday, is, of course, we have in the past undermined so many sources of meaning, right, family, religion, the nation, that it's understandable that particularly those who are most affected by this undermining uh, have looked for different things, right, that now for them it, it's the environmental movement, it's it's the climate movement, and I think we need to, we need to, to appraise and appreciate the fact that People are looking for meaning in their life. And if we take away certain sources of meaning, they're going to try to find new ones. But the question is, what is the effect of these new sources of meaning? And I'm afraid that the direction which we're currently going, right, for many people uh, will have very negative consequences. And this is worthwhile to point out and to as much as we can mobilize against it. Absolutely. I totally agree with you, whether it's a woke political ideology, which becomes their new religion or this climate activism while ignoring how it actually hurts average people. And they wrap themselves in this uh, are, great piece. If, can I just one quick sentence? Yeah. And they're all connected. Right. If, if you look at if you can, if you look at how many of these activists talk now, they all talk about, well, climate is also a, a problem of decolonization. Right. It's also a problem of, of, of capitalism. It's also a problem, a consequence of colonialism. So the Vogue language and the climate activist language is very similar because they are driven by the same motivation. Right. It's the search for a source of meaning in life. So it was only a matter of time until those two overlap. And I think this is what we see at the moment. 
Yeah, absolutely. Spot on. Ralph Schulhammer is his name. Uh, read his new work. We'll have it linked up in the description below, the new piece that he just published in Newsweek. Uh, thank you so much for your context on this. Ralph, great to see Thanks, you Craig, so anytime. much. Thank happy, you. And happy New Year to you. Thanks so much. Thank you to you as well. Thanks, Sean. And thanks to all of you, your comments here in the chat. You know, I'm watching them while doing, the, you know, have this interview. And it's like, so this is just one piece of it, right? Yeah. The idea that this is like a religion for these people because they, and they're bored. I mean. And because society is highly secular. This is something that Michael Schellenberger writes about in his book, San Francisco, is the absence of religion has created space uh, for people to em- embrace woke policy as a replacement for something to cling to. Yeah, they don't have God in their life. They don't have some meaning, so they they cling to this, right? right? This climate policy or woke politics. So they this is how they live their lives. And they think that they are being increasingly a- accepting of all lives of all lifestyles because a lot of times it is, of course, well intentioned, but you don't think about then who you're punching down at. Right, and this is what Alex Epstein writes about in his book, which is. When you, when you have this zero impact policy plan, when you're like, you know, it's the impact policy framework. And so we can't touch the earth. And that's great for all these elites to say, we need to tread more lightly on the earth. Great. That's nice for you in your multi-million dollar mansion to say that. But when that, what you're, what you're really saying is, Hey, all of you folks that live in Africa that rely on, on hydrocarbons to live your life and power your hospitals, stop using that stuff. Because I don't like it. I want you to have less impact on the earth. Um, so to those people, I'll say, oh, are you going to unplug your toothbrush and right. your mini fridge? No, you won't. They won't. No, I'm not and going to, Tesla, but I don't want you your, to have those things. Stop flying your private jet, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah. I think the private jets. I think part of the problem is underground bunkers. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I remember when I was young, right? So it's like. This just proves further that propaganda works because I became militant about the green movement because they they can easily convince you. And I kind of use the example like you always have new people coming on the Internet every day that still don't even know how to like copy and paste. So you have people getting fresh propaganda every day. And so I became militant about that green movement. I was all CFL light bulbs and all this other stuff. But then it just started to fall apart for me because. I saw the hypocrisy in it all, and I was like, wait a minute, I'm doing all this. So I think that like it starts out, people have the good intentions for a mission that they believe in because they do honestly feel like they're protecting the earth. But at yeah. some point, yeah. if it starts to fall apart, and then when it does, you have to embrace that it's changed and not keep going, which is the problem that – you know, I have with people that keep going, even when they have more information that proves it. Not yeah, like yeah. I think when we walk along the beach, like none of us wants to throw a plastic bag, like put it in the trash can, right? Don't be an idiot, right? Yeah, we've seen um, enough sea turtle pictures. Right. So you don't need to do that. Actually, but at the end of the day, it's like, okay, but is it, are we talking? So, okay, don't, don't throw that here in this, in this and make a mess, throw it in the trash can. But are so many plastic bags killing our oceans? And the answer is actually no, it's not. It's actually fishing equipment that is getting falling off of boats that winds up in the ocean. It's not plastic bags. So you need to, you know, you need to understand these things and like yeah. dive deeper into the the data on this. And I think you're right. A lot of this starts to unravel. Like, sure, treat the earth great. Like, don't don't pollute it. Right? Don't throw crap out your window when you're driving. And and you know, we want a beautiful place to live in. Right? Or if you live in urban cities, don't poop on the sidewalk. Right. How about that? Unlike San Francisco, which that's what they do there in San Francisco. Um, yeah. Uh, Michael Schellenberger, again, in Apocalypse Never, has an entire chapter about those turtle dying pictures or the turtles with the straws in their nose and how, you know, those are, yes, heartbreaking and gut-wrenching, but when you, you have to look into the actual incidents of plastic. And there are studies 
that have done that. So we can't sort of just be like, oh, well, then uh, then nobody should use a plastic straw because of the in- Internet video that I've seen when the move towards paper straws actually has a higher carbon emission. You're right. So we see one video of a turtle with a straw up its nose. And then, it, then suddenly, entire states have banned plastic straws. And uh, the data shows that the move to plastic bags has increased carbon emissions as well, because paper bags have a higher footprint to produce. Right. So now we move these stupid paper. I hate paper straws, by the way. They're the worst. Yeah. Oh, they they oh. make my. You know that feeling when you like fingers on the chalkboard. Yeah. Just mm. those touching my lips gives me that feeling. I cannot do paper oh, straws. Yeah. Where were we? We had like, a Starbucks it, like, lid that was made of that that paper straw material recently. Where was that? And I was yeah. like, oh, that's a no. That's an absolute. It was no. in France. I think it was in France. It was at the Starbucks in Toulouse. Yeah. It was that's in where it was. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, what is going on here now? It like, was the now, whole paper straw was the top, like the the pla- no, what would normally it. be the plastic top. Have you seen those, Philip, David? No, no, uh, no. I, we I have metal refuse. straws. Are the big the the big thing is bars in Portland have metal straws. Yeah, that they like wash then. So so that it's like everybody just has reusable metal straws, like spoons, basically. Mm. Yeah, but, I have those. I've had those from a kid's. Yeah, I have family. one in my car. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, stay away from those paper paper straws are the worst. They break down after a few seconds. You know, like and if you want to savor your drink, like if you got a you know, you got like a frou frou drink with some whipped cream or something on it, mm-hmm. you wanna like savor it a little bit. Yeah. And then like halfway through the drink the damn thing's broken down. Yep. I'm not Ridiculous. for this. How meta would it be to shoot spit wads through them though, you know? <laughs> we used to do that in high school. <laughs> spit spitballs. They could turn into a spitball on their own. I was an expert. Exactly. I used to get the, the I used to get the plastic straws from the lunch ladies and bring them. And then I used to I was I was an expert at the spitball. Got to get them real small. That's gross. I don't want to hear about that. The one time across the room, right on. Uh, what right did on, I just say? Right on Brett's forehead. Bonk. Can we mute him? <laughs> Bonk. It was per- it stuck right there as the teacher was calling on him. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you again. You're, you're, the, you're in the room with him. I can't. I can't mute him in yeah. your room. I can, can mute I him to this? the stream, but you'll still hear him. Funny story, <laughs> the though. Instead of what you want, you'd be the only one. Okay, then him. I'm just going to do this. Hold on. One other funny story. So about that, it was it was fourth grade chemistry class, and Chuck Dvorak, who was the school quarterback, friend of mine, Chuck Dvorak, it, we, we sat at the sarcastic table. So he was facing the hallway. And I was facing this way. He was facing the hallway. He had a spitball thing ready to go to fire at me or somebody else. And then he did. And just at the, he had the worst luck. The mo, and he was the quarterback. The moment he did this, the high school principal walks right by the door, right as he's firing the spitball. And then he was benched. He wasn't able to play in the next game because hmm. of that. I'm going to crush some skulls. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Bad luck. You know what that's from? Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for watching this segment here at Redacted. We are live every day at 4 p.m. Eastern time trying to share the stories that the mainstream media will not cover. You should also come over and join our community of Redacted Rebels over at Redacted.inc. That's our private locals community where we can share exclusive content that we simply cannot share here on YouTube. Come over and join the rebellion together right now by going to Redacted.inc. We'll see you next time.